Friday, you got your Bible out. You put your bookmark in there at Judges chapter 14, verses 1 through 20. Saturday, you started reading it over and over again so that you'd be ready. And then Saturday afternoon, you got the transcript in your email, right? You read the Bible study, so you're just stoked right now. Okay. That's one possibility. In one universe, that's possible. So Judges chapter 14, verses 1 through 20. The topic, Samson breaks his Nazarite vow when he scoops honey from the carcass of the lion he previously killed. The title of our message, Honey Boo Boo. If I had a mic, I would drop it, but that's all right. Well, everybody else, uh, well, never mind. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for this text, ancient text about an ancient people that speaks right to our hearts because of the ministry of the Spirit this morning. We thank you that you've promised to be in our midst, walking in the midst of the candlesticks, which you said were the churches in the book of the Revelation. We're no exception, Lord. We are your church, gathered together, the temple of your Holy Spirit, and we believe that you're here to minister. Reveal Christ to us in a deeper, more meaningful way. And if there's anybody here that doesn't know you as their Savior, Lord, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, convict them of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, Amen. In a memorable Got Milk commercial, a criminal is being interrogated by two detectives. On the table are oh-so-gooey, chewy, chocolate hostess cupcakes. Remember those? I had one in my lunch, too. Actually, they came in a pack of two, right? And you're, I, that was a staple in my lunch growing up in elementary school. They're not made of anything. Uh, there's, there's no real ingredients in them. They have no nutritional value, but they're so good. Did you eat the tops off first? How many of you eat the tops off first, and then, then you eat around the cream filling, and then you eat the cream filling? That's the proper way to eat a Hostess cupcake. So anyway... There's the cupcake on the table, and one of the cops says to him, go ahead, take a bite. The hungry suspect grabs one and begins to devour the entire cupcake. As he's clearly struggling to swallow, the cop says, we can do this the easy way while pulling a carton of milk out of a paper sack. But then he puts the milk just out of reach and says, smirking, or we can do it the hard way. <laughs> and then it, obviously the got milk thing comes on. There's a lot of variations of the easy way, hard way decision. There's even a version in The Lord of the Rings when Saruman says to Gandalf, I gave you the chance of aiding me willingly, but you chose the, uh, the way of pain. Now, for the most part, the Old Testament hero Samson did it the hard way, and it was definitely a way of pain, especially in the end when he had his eyes gouged out and was put to work as a beast of burden. What did he do the hard way? He judged Israel against the Philistines, wreaking havoc upon them. We'll see him kill 30 Philistines, then 1,000 more, and then anywhere from 3,000 to 7,000 more. But because he did it the hard way, along the way his own life was wrecked. Samson illustrates the carnal Christian. Writing to the believers in Corinth, the Apostle Paul said, I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ, for you are still carnal. Carnal Christians are saved, and they can be used by God, but you don't want to be one. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, 
Be horrified when your carnal rules over you. Number two, be humbled when God overrules your carnal. Let's take a look at being carnal in verses 1 through 3. Now, this word carnal, it can mean flesh or fleshly or pertaining to the body. In the Bible, there's also the connotation that carnal involves preferring things that are temporal rather than eternal. You want immediate satisfaction. The verse we quoted in 1 Corinthians goes on to say of the carnal Christian, you are worldly and living by human standards. So that's a, a good working definition. Another translation says, you are acting like the people of this world, indicating their behavior is essentially that of an unsaved person. Are there really carnal Christians? Well, Paul certainly used the word of believers in the church at Corinth. He called them brethren. He said, brethren, you are yet carnal. But some commentators point out that they were baby Christians who needed to grow, and that once they did grow, they would no longer be called carnal. They would become spiritual Christians. And that, in a sense, it's wrong to say that there can be such a thing as a carnal Christian, that perhaps such a person isn't a Christian at all. I can see what they're saying, but I don't think it's unbiblical to identify a mature believer as carnal if he or she, in fact, is dominated by their flesh rather than by the indwelling Holy Spirit. In some cases, the mature believer is carnal because they have yielded their members to sin, either for a short time or for a longer time. Billy Graham identifies a carnal Christian as having left their first love for Jesus. You're not committing any particular sin, but you no longer have a passion for the things of God. In other cases, and they're more subtle, but I think more prevalent, the mature believer is not sinning and outwardly seems passionate, but they have chosen to walk in the energy of their flesh rather than continuing in the power of the Holy Spirit. So those are three ways that a believer can be carnal. If you think it more accurate, you can call them Christians who are carnal rather than carnal Christians, as long as we capture the right sense of it. Samson was certainly saved. He was a believer. But I think it would be said of him at the very end of his life, you are still carnal. Samson is carnal. He is fleshly. He is worldly throughout the entire career as Israel's hero. And it all started with his trip down to Timnah in verse 1. Now, Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, the Philistine oppression of Israel had a different twist than that of some of the other pagan nations. After subduing Israel, the Philistines lived alongside them, and they tried to assimilate them by intermarrying with them. They wanted to dismantle the tribal society of Israel by intermarrying with them. Samson was a young man at this point, maybe still in his late teens, more likely in his early 20s. We can suppose that he had done nothing spectacular up to this point. He traveled openly and unhindered to Timnah and back. The Philistines were not concerned about him. They had not invented a threat level yet for Samson. Later on, they will, and they'll stalk him, and they'll watch out for him. But right now, he was just another Israelite coming down into Timnah. While in Timnah, it says he saw a woman, and he wanted her. Now, that's a problem because God had forbidden intermarriage with surrounding nations unless they first converted to Judaism. Samson certainly knew this, but he was thinking temporal thoughts rather than eternal, and this was a sure sign he was carnal. Uh, he saw a girl, 
says, I want to marry that girl. She's beautiful. He wasn't thinking about the long game, about keeping his tribal name going, about, you know, having a, another believer for a wife, those kinds of things. Today, we try hard to restrict believers from marrying non-believers. That's because we're told in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 6, 14, not to be unequally yoked with believers. And so a, a believer ought not marry a non-believer. Every time I, I meet a, a potential spouse that I don't know, I have a, an extreme fear comes over me. They say, oh, this is my fiancé. Okay, I have to ask you this. Are you a Christian? And then it's, it's always the same thing. Either a big smile comes on the person's face and they start giving you their testimony, or they say, well... And then they say, what, I don't even listen to what they say after that because they're not Christians. And then I talk to the young lady or the young man who is a Christian. I say, you realize your, your future spouse, your fiancé, isn't a Christian. Well, they're better than most Christians. So kind. She's so loving. You know, that kind of thing. We do everything we can because it's painful to be a Christian married to a non-Christian. It's not God's way. We'll talk about this a little bit more at the end, so I'm not going to leave you there. But uh, it, God says it's the hard way. But many believers rush headlong into those marriages only to feel the pain later. Verse 2. So he went up and told his father and mother, saying, I've seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Therefore, get her for me as a wife. Every parent's nightmare. Your son or your daughter wants to marry the wrong person. Now, I know, you never think anybody's good enough for your son or your daughter. That's certainly true in my family. But uh, you, you, sometimes your son or your daughter actually brings the wrong person home. Have you ever had that experience? It's horrible. You're kidding. You've got to be kidding. Hey, can you hang out here for a minute on the porch while I talk to my son or my daughter? You've got to be kidding me. This is a joke. Is it April Fool's? You're not really thinking of this, are you? And so Mr. and Mrs. Manoa having a hard time with this, but they would have the additional crushing disappointment of realizing that the son who had been a Nazarite from the womb, who was set apart as a hero to deliver Israel from the Philistines, was instead demanding to marry one of them. And then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised, uh, uncircumcised Philistines. And Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She pleases me. Now they were speaking of the spiritual importance of ritual circumcision that it kept Israel separate from other nations. So they're appealing to Samson's sense of separation uh, and wanting to keep uh, things uh, obedient to God. But it didn't faze Samson. It was all about what pleased him, not what would bring glory to God. It was based on natural attraction, not any supernatural leading. I don't need to point out that Samson was being disrespectful to his parents as well. And so he's carnal through and through. There's nothing spiritual going on in Samson's life. God's boundaries, his restrictions regarding marriage and human sexuality are for our good. They're for his glory. Within a monogamous heterosexual marriage, we can experience both pleasure, which Samson was thinking of, and joy which he was not thinking of. You see, since God created marriage and made its rules and boundaries, you can only have spiritual joy by going God's way. You can have pleasure, but you can't have joy unless you marry 
as God has determined it. And then you can have a deep and abiding joy, a psychological happiness that you can't have any other way. And so it's for our good and for God's glory that we obey. By giving himself over to the flesh, Samson would never know the joy of a deep and abiding love. He would never have a companion to share his life with. Samson was called from the womb to deliver Israel from the Philistines. In his first recorded foray into their territory, he didn't challenge them. He didn't throw down their gods. He didn't desecrate their temple. I mean, think of it. This kid had been set apart in the womb. His mother started uh, uh, on her Nazarite diet before he was even conceived, and he was uh, set apart to serve the Lord as a hero. And now all of a sudden, late teens, early 20s, here he comes into t Philistine territory for the first recorded time, and you're thinking, man, this is going to be epic. What is God going to do? And then as Samson's walking through town, who knows what God was going to do because he looks over and he sees a beautiful woman. And he gets all Twitterpated. And that's it. He goes to pieces. He's overcome by the sight of a beautiful woman. It's interesting, the emphasis on what Samson saw in this section. I'm sure he saw a lot of beautiful women in his life. We'll see some of them ourselves. And he indulged in their pleasures. How ironic that he would end his life with his eyes gouged out, seeing nothing. Do you think it was worth it in the end? Of course not. Samson's one of those guys who, if he could tell you, would tell you that he wasted his life and that um, you should obey the Lord. And so secondly, in verses 4 through 20, you should be humbled when God overrules your carnal. Now is as good a time as any to correct a common misconception about Samson. He was not muscle-bound. His strength didn't come from being a gym rat. It was supernatural. Otherwise, the Philistines wouldn't always been trying to figure out where his strength came from. That's what finally uh, catches him with Delilah. She, they say, hey, we'll pay you money to find out where his strength comes from. He wasn't like the movie Samson all rippling with muscles. We wouldn't cast uh, the Rock, Dwayne Johnson, as Samson. Hollywood would, but he didn't look like that. He looked more like Steve Buscemi. <laughs> Let's say he's just an average-looking guy. He doesn't have to be ugly. He's just average-looking. And you'd look at him and you'd think, that person is Israel's hero? This young guy, average-looking young guy? And, and the answer was yes, because God would come upon him by the Spirit, as we'll see him do here. And so get that out of your mind. Before we see one of his streaks, uh, feats of strength, the writer has an insight for us to consider in verse 4. He says, But his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines, for at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. Now there's a lot of theology packed into that comment. We can see God's sovereignty at work right alongside of man's free will. And there's a little bit of God's providence thrown in. But it's also very simple. We don't need to get bogged down. God stirred up Samson to move against the Philistines. But when Samson got to Timnah, his flesh took over and deliverance from the Philistines would have to happen the hard way. I'm saying that God had a plan to move against the Philistines, but it certainly did not involve Samson marrying one of them. In his sovereignty, 
God provided for his plan another way when Samson was disobedient, and he did it without violating Samson's free will. And so it's, a, it's an amazing kind of little microcosm of sovereignty, free will, and providence. Verse 5, so Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother, and he came to the vineyards of Timnah. Stop there. With the mention of vineyards, it's a good time to refresh ourselves concerning the lifestyle of a Nazarite. Uh, Numbers chapter 6, beginning in verse 2. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when either a man or woman consecrates an offering to take the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and similar drink, he shall drink neither vinegar made from wine nor vinegar made from similar drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice nor eat fresh grapes or raisins. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. All the days of the vow of his separation, no razor shall come upon his head. Until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord, he shall be holy. Then he shall let the locks of his hair grow on his head. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. Samson should not have been anywhere near the vineyards of Timnah. Now, it's clear he went there by himself. He took his own trip there. His parents didn't know about it as they were journeying uh, along the way. It's, it's like, it almost reads like it was a wine tasting. You know, he's going down the road, and it's like you see those signs all the time, wine tasting at the vineyard. He popped in. Uh, and he shouldn't have been anywhere near there. And so it says in verse 5, Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother, came to the vineyards. Now to his surprise, a young lion came roaring against him. The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Young means a lion in the prime of its life. This wasn't a little cub cute little cub that he decided to kill because he was cruel to animals. He was attacked by a young lion. Now, these are what we today would identify as Asiatic lions. There aren't any in the promised land anymore, but they were plentiful in Bible times, and they were dangerous. We were up at the Cat Haven not too long ago looking at the cats, and uh, they have a lion there, and when that thing roars, it sends chills up your spine, even though it's couple of hundred yards away from you. It's, it's terrifying. Uh, I, I, can you, uh, anyway. Samson was surprised, but he easily prevailed as the Spirit came upon him and empowered him. Didn't have a scratch on him, didn't bruise himself. His parents, when he got back to them, knew nothing about it. He easily dispatched this lion. Might this have been a warning to Samson? Now, we have the New Testament. He didn't, but I think he could have put this together. A roaring lion seeking to devour him. Does that remind you of anybody that we read about in the New Testament? Satan is the roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He would not have been in that situation had he honored his vows. And so, you know, I'm thinking uh, I'm in a vineyard and I shouldn't be and I get attacked by a lion maybe I should take this as a warning that I'm in the wrong place and get out of here. At the same time, God empowered him to defeat the lion. If the spirit could strengthen Samson physically against so fierce a foe, could he not also give him victory over his flesh? 
And so this lion episode is really powerful if you have any discernment whatsoever. It's a warning that you're about to blow it or you are blowing it and it's a, uh, an encouragement that God can still use you and empower you. But instead, Samson missed the lesson, did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Now, I can even go so far as to think, hey, I'm not going to tell mom and dad that I went to the vineyard and that I killed a lion, but I am going to tell them, let's go home. Let's forget this trip to Timnah. I don't want to marry a Philistine girl. I've changed my mind. They don't need to know that it was a, you know, a lion that changed my mind but, and, and the, the grace of God. But he persists. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she pleased Samson well. This means they made the customary arrangements for a wedding. After some time, when he returned to get her, he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the carcass of the lion. Now, this is strike two, because a Nazarite was to avoid dead bodies, even those of animals. But maybe if he could just see it and not touch it. He wasn't expecting there to be honey in it. He just wanted to return to his exploit, which again, he shouldn't have been in the vineyards in the first place. He obviously shouldn't have been there in the second place. But there within the carcass, irresistible honey. He's like the Winnie the Pooh of the Old Testament, you know. It's like, I kind of got to have that. And so he scoops it out. Now, if we build on the New Testament symbolism of Satan being the roaring lion seeking to devour, we're warned that even when we think he's been beaten, he remains dangerous. For one thing, there are some places you should just not go. There are some situations you should just not be in. Take heed when you think you're strong because you might fall. Don't think that you're going to defeat the flesh completely in this life. We need to be on guard. So verse 9, he took some of it in his hands and went along eating. And when he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them, and they also ate. But he didn't tell them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. Samson must have thought that what his parents didn't know wouldn't hurt them. Secrets and lies and sneaking around, those are works of the flesh. Verse 10, so his father went down to the woman, and Samson gave a feast there, for young men used to do so. And it happened when they saw him that they brought 30 companions to be with him. This is all very typical. They would have a week-long feast that preceded the wedding. And because they didn't consummate the wedding until the last day, the men would have their sort of partying and the women would have their sort of partying. And so the woman uh, from Timnah, all her friends were there. And so she had her bridesmaids, as it were. But Samson apparently was just him and his mom and dad. And so that's not much of a party when you're 20 years old to party with your mom and dad. And so Samson, uh, they see him and they send 30 Philistine guys. Hey, if there's going to be a party, let's do it. And so these are all Philistines. He had brought no friends of the bridegroom. I think it's sad that Samson had no friends. Did you ever think about that before? No friends. He had brought no friends. No one wanted to be around him. What does that tell you? That tells you that Samson was a jerk. Think of people like in high school that nobody wanted to be around. Usually they were jerks. Unless it's you and then you were a great person. <laughs> Samson was a jerk. He didn't have any friends. He had nobody he could bring to, to this wedding. He was completely driven by the flesh. 
Then Samson said to them, let me pose a riddle to you. If you can correctly solve and explain it to me within seven days of the feast, I'm going to give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. But if you cannot explain it to me, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. And they said to him, pose your riddle that we may hear it. Riddles were a big thing in ancient cultures, more so than today. J.R.R. Tolkien treats the riddle game between Bilbo and Gollum as if it's almost something sacred. Uh, there's a whole chapter, the riddles in the dark and, and the rules of riddles and those kinds of things. We could call Samson's riddle the lion, the wife, and the wardrobe because in verse 14 it says, So he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. Now for three days they could not explain the riddle. It reminds you of Bilbo asking Gollum, What's in my pocket? It wasn't a riddle in the classic sense because it couldn't be guessed from clues. Samson's could, uh, but it would be a real stretch. It was something only he knew the answer to. came to pass on the seventh day that they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband that he may explain the riddle to us, or else we're going to burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us in order to take what is ours? Is that not so? In chapter 15, we'll see the Philistines act on this threat they do burn her and her father with fire. Philistines, you don't want to mess around with these guys. Verse 16, then Samson's wife wept on him and said, you only hate me. You don't love me. You put the riddle to the sons of my people. You have no place to me. And so on. Now she wept on him seven days while their feast lasted. And it happened on the seventh day that he told her because she pressed him so much. Then she explained the riddle to the sons of her people. The flesh is simultaneously weak and strong. It was strong enough so that Samson easily denied his Nazarite vow for wine and honey, but he was weak enough that a man who could kill a lion with his bare hands could not withstand the nagging of a woman. I have no other comments about that. And men, neither do you. So the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey, and what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. So Samson's not the most romantic guy. <laughs> heifer doesn't rank as a term of endearment. If you're, you know, engaged and you're thinking of some term of endearment, you don't look at your spouse-to-be and say, oh, honey, you're such a heifer. <laughs> wow. Plowed with my heifer, actually, it was an idiom that described misusing something or someone because you normally plow with oxen. If you were plowing with a heifer, it was a misuse. And so Samson was pointing out, you guys cheated is what he said. And, um, but he draws his wife into it with this insult. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of their men, took their apparel, and gave the changes of clothing to those who had explained the riddle. So his anger was aroused, and he went back up to his father's house. Apparently, Old Navy was closed. So Samson traveled to another town and killed 30 Philistines for their wardrobe. His anger was aroused. This is not a righteous anger against their domination of Israel. It was Samson's personal anger a sure symptom of the flesh dominating him. And I believe this could be seen as another subtle nudge from God. 
Samson ought to have been representing God and God's wrath against the oppressors. Instead, Samson is overcome by petty emotions that are unworthy of a servant of God. And Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. As I said earlier, Samson had no real companion to act as his best man. He didn't even have a best friend, let alone any friends. We have to therefore assume this companion was one of the Philistines who had attended the feast. God was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines in order to begin to deliver Israel from their domination using Samson. The Spirit stirred Samson to go down into Philistine territory. What was God's plan? How was he going to utilize Samson? We will never know because Samson got sidetracked by his flesh when he saw a beautiful Philistine woman and wanted to marry her, a thing that was forbidden by God's law. Things began to cascade as Samson went into a vineyard, then he touched a carcass, breaking two of the three lifestyle vows of a Nazarite. We're not told that Samson drank wine at the feast, but I think we all know that he did. Uh, I mean, I don't think we're reading anything into the text to know that he could care less about the Nazarite vow. Now, the Nazarite vow was meant to be an outward show of an inward devotion. While we no longer take the vow, it does have New Testament counterparts. The Nazarite was to avoid everything concerning grapes, which in that culture included wine and later strong drink. The Christian is to remain sober. Now, that doesn't just mean you don't get drunk. It means we have a sober, realistic, eternal mindset and lifestyle. Apostle Peter said this, Be sober and vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The Nazarite was to never cut his or her hair. This speaks to us of being submitted to God because in the Bible, hair and head covering is a symbol of submission to authority. We're to look like and to live like we are submitted to the authority of another, that other person, Jesus Christ. James wrote, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The Nazarite was to avoid death. I think the spiritual counterpart here is our call to remain separate from the world. We are, to use the well-worn phrase, to be in the world, but not of the world. Samson was to be a lifelong Nazarite. We are to be living sacrifices, offering ourselves to God for his constant use. Quoting the Old Testament, the Apostle Paul wrote this about separation. He said, Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. God was merciful to warn Samson about his sin and to show him he could overcome it. If Samson could defeat the roaring lion, he could defeat the beast within the flesh. But Samson chose the temporal over the eternal. He remained carnal. Now, here's the amazing grace of it all. God used Samson despite all of that. This was not God's plan. God does not plan for his people to sin. God sent Samson to Timnah with a plan to begin to judge and be a hero for Israel, and Samson presented him with his flesh. And so God, if you'll allow me to use the word, improvised. The sovereign God who allows for our free will provided for his plan in another way. And we end up with Samson beginning to do damage to the Philistines. God used Samson despite all that. 
It's not something to brag about. It is, in fact, humbling. It was a kindness on God's part that ought to have led Samson to repentance. Samson sinned, but God's grace abounded. The Apostle Paul once asked, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he answered, Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? This is one of the aspects of God's character we love if we're the sinner, but we have a hard time with if it's someone else. When somebody else is just blowing it and God seems to be overlooking it or even actually using the person, it's like, God, what are you doing? And we need to remind ourselves he's doing what he will do for you as well. With grace and mercy, grace upon grace, continue to use you while he's drawing you back to himself. Earlier I mentioned that a Christian is not to be unequally yoked with a non-believer. And I mentioned that too many believers ignore that to their own pain. But guess what? Sometimes the non-believer gets saved. I say to that, hallelujah. Does that mean it was God's will all along? And the answer to that, surprisingly, is no. God's will is that no one should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. And so if a person gets saved, that's a wonderful thing. But because a person got saved after they married a non-believer a day later or a month later or a decade later, that doesn't change the situation. That situation was, that was disobedience to God. And we have to look at that and be humbled that God used us anyway. And so if you're in that situation, I don't mean to, to uh, bemoan you or to belittle you, but you should be humbled. You should say, wow, this is how amazing God's grace. When I veer off the path, when I see something I want that God clearly says is not for me, and then years later he works it out for my good and his glory, I'm, I should be humbled by that. And that's what God does because that's who God is. We don't want to continue in sin so that grace might abound. God's graciousness never excuses sin. So if you've sinned, or if you're in sin right now, if you've left your first love, or if you, having begun in the Spirit, are trying to live the Christian life in the energy of your flesh, God's grace will abound to you. He has grace upon grace for you to get out of those situations. The question for each of us today who are Christians is this, have I chosen the easy way or the hard way? If I were to lay my life out before Christians, as it is before Jesus, and say, Lord, here are my decisions, this is what I'm doing, would we actually say, well, that's the hard way, that's your way? Or would we say, no, that's the easy way, that's God's way, that's clearly God's will for your life? Sin is the hard way. Trying to walk in the energy of the flesh is a hard way. God still uses me while I'm choosing the hard way, but I should not confuse that for His approval. It's just that His mercy and grace seek to lead me to repentance. And as I've said a couple times already, I should be humbled. If I am sober and submitted and separated, then the roaring lion who seeks to devour me must flee. He'll keep coming back, but I already have everything I need in Christ to defeat him. I need to die to myself. I need to crucify the flesh. I need to walk in the Spirit, obeying God, going His way. Thank you.